Okay, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Titus chapter 1. Titus is in the New Testament towards the end of your Bible. God put all the T's together in the Bible, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus. So if you're around the T's, you can find them there. Remember, it's not against God's law to use your table of contents if you can't find Titus. But we are studying this book, going through it this fall, kind of thought by thought, to learn about the church and what is a healthy church look like. And uh, it's a really important study, and I'm excited that we get to be in it today. Today we're going to be looking at Titus 1, verses 10 through 16 this morning. We're finishing up this section on appointing elders, appointing leaders in the church, and what that is and what that's like. And, uh, and, and we're going to examine this here this morning. But I would like to just begin by opening our time in prayer, if you would join me in prayer. Father, thank you for uh, the glorious truth of life. I thank you, God, that we can be set free, that all of the bondage that rages within us, not just the crisis on the outside, but the, the things on the inside can be set free, that we can be filled with life, such a life that we can continue on in this world even when uh, things on the outside get rough. I thank you that we uh, have that life in you, Jesus. And as we discuss leaders here this morning and examine this passage, God, I, I pray it would just cause us to take seriously the importance of the right kind of leaders in a church and and to remember the importance of this as we seek to be faithful with this season of life you've given to us, with this church that you've entrusted to us. Thank you, God, now for the privilege we have of being together. Lord, may it genuinely cause us to love Christ more. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. You know, this past week I was reading this book. It was a newer book that had come out, and it was on how to uh, help you understand your your purpose in God's kingdom and, and to help you understand how to use your gifts in the kingdom of God better. And I was going through that book, and in the book there was an exercise they asked you to do, and the exercise was to go back and look at uh, the significant events in your past and, uh, and how did they shape you and change you, and especially in relation if you're thinking about the ministry and serving God and, and things like that. And, and so I was kind of going on this reflective journey of all the things that that had happened in my past. And, and I started thinking about, you know, one of the things that I remember early on when I first sensed a call in my life to vocational ministry. It was in the uh, mid to late 80s when this really strong call was going in my life. And, uh, and, and really when God started putting that on my heart, uh, at the same time, this was during the big televangelist scandals. Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, those of you who are young, no, probably don't have an idea what I'm talking about. But if you remember this, back in the 80s, there was these, this big scandal. And they, they had done all these horrible things, right? And, and uh, you know, they're out there you know, preaching, asking for money. And then, of course, they're using this money and building up lavish houses and doing all these immoral things. And, and God just, like, ripped the blinders off. And, and you, everyone got to see what was really going on. And it was big news then, big news. Now, at that point, I'm feeling a sense of calling to the ministry. And so I'm talking to people about what's going on. And, and, uh, and, and I was in the, the Air Force at this point, and, and guys are saying, hey, you know, what are you going to do when you get out? I'm, oh, you know, I think I want to go into ministry. What? You know, 
Jim, Jim Baker, and they just, you know, get all angry, right? They would just, and they would just, like, unload. And, and, and I remember thinking to myself, uh, boy, you know, when you name the name of Christian, you are responsible for every single thing that was done in the name of Jesus, right? Suddenly, I'm accountable for the Crusades, you know, like, I don't know, I wasn't alive, you know, I wasn't leading the charge to kill people, you know, I just, just know I want to serve Jesus now. But yet it just comes at you aggressively. But I want to tell you why that was a shaping moment. It wasn't a shaping moment because at that moment I felt like, oh my, you know, maybe the church stinks and God stinks and everything stinks because these two ministries stumbled and fell. Actually what it did is it caused me to call a friend of mine to study the Bible. And we studied Titus. And I remembered this this week. I had, I had forgotten about it until I was provoked to think about it. We actually came in and we said, you know, we should study what it is to be a shepherd in the church. Because we're not beyond doing even dumber things than those guys did, right? I mean, we were young guys at that point in time in life. And, and you know, I can't tell you that in 1986 I was trucking along doing everything great, you know. In 19, if you had met me in 1986, you probably would not want me standing behind this pulpit, you know, and so, so I remember thinking to myself, you know, we should, we should really find out what God would want in a leader because uh, if God's calling us to this, then maybe we should start working on things. And I remember sitting with my friend just pouring over Titus chapter 1 and, 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 and just saying, okay, what is it that we need to be because the reality is, unless we are bringing our life and our sin and our, our yuck before God, we're not going to be good shepherds. We're not going to be. We're going to be working off of our own motives. And, and that was a shaping moment for my life. And I realized, I, I, I'm thinking that the book of Titus can be that for us as a church. It'd be very easy for us, especially what we're looking at today as we begin in verse 10 looking at the false teachers, the false shepherds, it'd be very easy to just start pointing fingers and to start saying, hey, you know, yeah, that's why these people are bad. And, and, you know, I could just start putting names up of bad ministries and we could just start pointing fingers and pointing fingers. But, but I think as a church, one of the things we should be doing is saying, wait a minute, God, work in my life. I don't want to be like that. But I could be. But I don't want to be. God, work in my life. And, and as we go through this list, I'm hoping that as we go through it, it gives us some discernment, gives us some understanding of what's happening, and gives us an understanding of what, what leaders in a church should be like. It gives us understanding what happened if we don't take it seriously, what will happen to the church. But it should also provoke us to say, yeah, let's make sure in our life we're shining the light inside, right? We're taking the log out of our own eye before we start dealing with the specks in our brother's eyes. And I'm hoping that would happen. Now, what I want to do here today, because we're going to kind of bounce around like we did last week in the passage, but I'd like to just take a moment and kind of summarize for you Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. I want you to see the whole flow of it. And I'm just going to give you a summary of it so that you can get an understanding of what he's saying. Because Titus has been left in Crete to set this church in order. He's got to put it together. That's his job. And his, his, his mission is to make sure that the pieces are operating correctly and that there's the right kind of shepherds leading the church, shepherding the church. 
And so what, he's, what Paul says, basically, here's kind of the summary of, of, of verses 5 through 16. Paul says, I've left you here, Titus. I want you to, to put this church, get it functioning, put the right kind of leaders in place. And these right kind of leaders are going to be guys that you can tell by this. First of all, when you look at their family life, they're devoted to their wives. They're not out there messing around. They're completely devoted to their wives. And they've proven themselves as shepherds by the way their children respond to them. That they are about shepherding their children, not just ruling with an iron fist, not just setting abstract laws, but actually such good shepherds that their children respond by saying, you know what, we'll listen to you, Dad. It isn't that the children are perfect, but that the dad has a voice in his home. You want that kind of man to shepherd in your church. He can't be driven by selfish greed. He can't be driven by anger, by pride, by, by, by his, you know, can't be under the influence of other things, anything other than the very Spirit of God. That's what he has to be. And he's got to make sure that he, can, that, he, that he knows the Word, believes the Word, can handle the Word, can instruct people in the Word, and can stand up against the false teacher and show him where he's wrong. That's the kind of shepherd you want. Now, there's a reason why, and this moves into the section we're looking at today, verse 10. There's a reason why. Because out there in the world, there are a multiplicity of bad teachers. They're waiting to come in. They're waiting to make their way into the church. And when they make their way into the church, they're going to just mess everything up because they don't submit to authority. They're their own authority. They live for their own pleasure. They live for their own greed. They teach for their own ends. They teach laws and rules that do nothing but tear families apart. They're so worthless because they pretend like they love God. But when you look behind the curtain, they don't. They actually deny God. And so they've got to be stopped. They've got to be silenced. They've got to be exposed because they're worthless. Now that's the section right there. That's the whole passage. We could close in prayer right there. Right? That, that's it. That's the whole section. But what I want us to do now is jump into verse 10 and, and on and look at these false teachers, look at these false shepherds. And last week, if, if you weren't here, what we did is when we looked at the, 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 the qualifications of the true shepherds, we noticed that they had to be men of conviction, men of character, men of competency. Now, today I'm going to use that same outline, conviction, character, competency, but we're going to apply it to the false teachers, and I'm going to show you their wrong convictions, their wrong character, and their wrong competencies. We're going to show you how they're bad in those areas. And here's the reason why I want us to do this. This passage is here for protection. It's here to protect the church. It's here for us to realize something very important. If we don't put the right godly shepherds in, then the wrong godly shepherds will come in. That's the point. If you don't take it seriously, then the wrong shepherds step in. You can look at a church that was started 150 years ago that you know, held high the word of God, held high the, the glory of Christ, and in 150 years later doesn't even believe the Bible. How does that happen? It happens because people don't take these 10 verses in Titus seriously. As we think about our church, and I think about the next generation, I think about what kind of church do I want to hand off to the next generation? What's the baton we want to pass? We want to pass a baton where Christ is glorified, the word is proclaimed without compromise, and that we are about making the name of Jesus known to the world. 
But we don't just do that. We can't just, it, that just won't happen because it's in our heart. It, it, it has to happen because we've done it. We've taken seriously the call and the mantle of shepherds. So let's look here at conviction. The first thing we're going to look at. What is the conviction? When I use the word conviction, what I mean is that, that, false, that every teacher, everybody who wants to be some kind of leader has some kind of conviction, something that's driving them. The, the conviction of the, of the true shepherds was, it, it was an incredible purity, a love of the truth, a desire for the truth to be known. What is the conviction of the false shepherds? Let's look at verse 12 together, 12 through 14. Paul is talking about the Cretans, and he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. His testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command of people who turn away from the truth. Now, you read that, and you might think, what? Paul just kind of pretty brutal there. Here's what he's saying. Crete is a really pagan place. It's pagan. These are evil people. They're wicked people. They, they don't love people, man. They're, just, they're beasts. In fact, it's so bad that even their own poets write poems about how wretched they are. That's how bad this place is. Now he says, so there is the pond you're fishing out of. Okay, now you're fishing out of a pond by a nuclear power plant that has a leak. Okay, so that's the fish that's coming out. Now the good news is that God can change some of those fish as they come out. But you don't want to just start casting and eating. It's bad. In fact, this is why you have to be careful. You're standing amidst a culture that is depraved, right? He says it's true. And so these false teachers are going to reflect their culture. And so he says rebuke them sharply. Be clear about what you're going to say is what he means. Deal with their heresy directly. Because, they, because when, as people are coming out, they need to be sound in their truth. They need to know it. Now, we see what they taught. There's two things he says that they taught in verse 14. Notice verse 14. That they won't devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commandments of people who turn away from the truth. There are two basic theological errors of the false teachers we see here. And these errors are today. The first is Jewish myths. In our day, we can just say myths. What's a Jewish myth? That's when somebody takes a, a teaching from the Scriptures and then they just start making stuff up about it. They just start coming up with these really off-the-wall thoughts. In our day today, it's seen by people maybe when they're trying to predict the return of Jesus. Right? And they take some verse. Do you notice this verse has 27 words in it? The number 27 means Egypt. And if you notice in Egypt, there was a law that was passed, and Jesus is coming back on the 27th of August. Right? They, they do these kind of things where you're like, what is that? How did you come up with that? I can't even figure that out. Right? How do you know there are 27 words in there? You know, it's, like, it's kind of stuff, but it's just a myth. It's not new in our day. It's been going on there. They were doing it back then. They were taking prophecies about, about, about the Messiah and coming up with all kinds of crazy stuff. This is one of the signs, one of the theologies of the false teachers. They come with their myths. Another thing they come up with are the commandments of people. These are those kind of rituals and things that, that false teachers put on people. In that day, the rituals, that they, the commands they put on, on you were uh, all the men had to be circumcised and, and all the women had to live in home with men who were circumcised. That was one of the rules. They had all kinds of dietary rules and rituals 
and, and, and all kinds of things. If you were a leader, you couldn't get married. And, I mean, they had just all of these commandments they had come up with. Things you couldn't touch, things you couldn't do, this and that, this and that. So that's another sign of the false teacher. Another conviction is they'll bring their laws, their rules. In fact, I like to say it this way. False teachers have, uh, are, are known by their three L's. The three L's of false teachers. Law-keeping. Right? Obey the structure of the law, but not the heart of the law. They're just going to start grabbing laws out of the Old Testament, and they're just going to make you follow them. You've got to follow all these laws. Law-keeping. Second, logic. Exploiting from the text ideas and teachings that aren't true to the context. All right? They're exploiting it. They're logical, but it's just exploiting the text. And finally, legalisms. You can't eat this on this day. You can't do this. You can't wear this. You can't, right? And on and on it goes. Just all these commands. That's the convictions that comes in to the false teacher through false teaching. Now, let's move from their conviction to their character. Okay? Because, because this, this is true, and we've got to be careful, and this is what's waiting at the door of every church. But it even goes deeper now into their character. Look at verse 10 with me. What's the character of a false teacher? For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. First thing I want you to notice in verse 10 is that the word many, it means this, I believe that there are more false shepherds than there are true shepherds. That's what he's saying. Just be careful, man. They are just lined up like airplanes waiting to land at O'Hare. They're just waiting to get in. There's a lot of them. And then he gives this list of their character. Let me give you kind of a rundown of this list. The first one he gives is they're insubordinate. This is a person who doesn't fall under the authority that God's established. One of the signs of a false teacher is they they don't do this. Let me give you a negative and a positive example of that. Negative example of that is this happens about once a year. Somebody walks in, it's their first Sunday here. And so they come up to meet me and they say, Hey, Pastor, you know, the Lord's given me a message to preach at your church next Sunday. I want to preach. And I say, No. And they say, Well, the Lord's put on my heart. I can preach. No. No. You're you're squelching the spirit, man. God's going to take you down for this. Okay. You don't feel called to take me down on behalf of God, do you? Just checking, you know? If you're feeling that call, please let me know. <laughs> some people I'd like to call for some prayer for you. <laughs> They'll lay hands on you. And, uh... But this happens. And they come in with their agenda. That's a negative example of that. Let me give you a positive or, or a side, the flip side of this, where, where what it looks like if, if the person is subordinate, right? Like a good, somebody who, who did it right. Uh, when I was a college pastor a long time ago, I w- at this church I was at, I was in charge of conferences, Bible conferences, and this church had a f- few Bible conferences, and we had one where we were bringing in these, like, uh, you know, ministers from all over the United States. It was a big conference, and, and like, kind of all the big, big guns were coming, the, the real popular guys that were on the radio and and, all this. and there was one guy I was really excited to meet. I was excited to meet him. And, uh, and so he came, and I introduced myself, and I said, hey, you know, I'm, 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 I'm kind of facilitating this conference. If there's anything I can do to, to help you, uh, can you, you know, let me know. I really respected this guy. And, and, and then he said this. This was his response. Well, here's how you can help me. What's the next thing on your to-do list that I can do for you? And I said, no, 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 no. you don't have to do anything for me. You know, I mean, he's, he's like, he's, I'm 27, he's 60, he's written a gazillion books, everybody respects the guy, 
you know, brilliant theologian, you know, he's just the guy that was like kind of one of the influencers in, in my life. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, if, if you're the guy in charge, then I work for you. So what do you need me to do? You see, that's a true shepherd, isn't it? The false shepherds come in, this is what I need. Here's my rider. I need this kind of water to drink. I need you to do this for me. I need that for right? Insubordinate. You can see it. You can see it when they come in with their agenda. And they lay their agenda down and they ask the church to submit to their agenda. Insubordinate. Next one. Empty talkers. We'll keep trucking through here. Empty talkers. Empty talkers means somebody who is saying something. It appears like they're saying something, but they're not. Two ways you can see empty talkers in our world today. Uh, The way it looks for us today is what I would call the emotional talkers. These are guys who kind of ramp people up. I was listening to a guy this week kind of ramping up the church. Man, he's just up there, and he's just like, he's going. He's going to town, man. He's just hooping and hollering, and the people are shouting and, and, they're, and they're going crazy. And so I went back. This was on, it was on video. So I went back and I re- rewound it. And I wrote down his message. And I thought, what would happen if he delivered this message without yelling? Would he get the same response? Okay? Because it was like, you know, everybody was going nuts. And so I'm going to deliver you his message without yelling. And I want to see if you, if, if you start jumping, then it'll unprove my point. Okay, here's his message, verbatim. I was driving a car with a shifter on the wheel. When I hit it, it went into third gear and I shot forward. Honey, God is going to hit the shifter in your life. There's a wave coming, there's a wave coming, there's a wave coming, there's a wave coming, there's a wave coming. That goes on about seven more times, I won't give them all. Why don't you shout right now, shout, 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 shout. 42 times he yelled, shout. Okay, now, that's an empty talker, in my opinion. It's an emotional talker. There's nothing blessing there, right? That's what I'm talking about. Empty talker. It appears like you're saying something because you're like, God's got a wave coming! Woo! Shout! Right? And everybody's going, shout! Sorry for waking the babies there. Right? And everyone's getting all pumped up. Empty talkers, though, you got to be careful. It's what's called what I call it the emotional talker. The next kind of empty talker is the uh, logical talker. The logical talker is the one who who takes a biblical thought and extrapolates it logically so far away from the Bible, you don't even know what happened. Example of that might be uh, a logical talker might say, Psalm 101 says, "I'll put no worthless thing before my eyes." What is worthless in our day today? TV. The Bible says that you should not watch TV because it is worthless. If you read Matthew 25, Jesus said worthless people are going to hell. Therefore, if you watch TV, you're going to hell. Okay, you get it? Logic. It has nothing to do with what Psalm 101 or Matthew 25 teaches at all, away from the context. Now, I'm giving you those examples, not to just make you chuckle, but to, to, to show you that that's true out there. You've got some that are trying to to touch your emotions. You've got others that are just developing logical trains of thought, but neither one are sticking to the text and saying, this is what the author said. He says, you've got to be careful. Okay? So they're empty talkers. Deceivers. That's the next one on there. That means someone who tries to appear godly. They put on forms of godliness. 
but in reality, when you peer behind it, it's not godly at all. They try to talk you into that it's godly, but it's not. Let's look at verse 11. He says, They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Simple point. They've got to be stopped. Because if you buy into either the emotional talk or the logical talk or all of those kinds of things, it doesn't achieve godliness in your home. It only just unveils the flesh more. And then more and more destruction happens. And, and then you, you start, it just starts creating more, you, more and more pain. And so for the love of the people and the love of the church, please take this seriously is what Paul is saying to Titus. Take it seriously. Gives us one more character trait of these guys. They teach for shameful gain. They teach not for the growth of the person into the character of Christ, but for their own agenda. At the end of the day, it's not about seeing people love Jesus more. It's about whatever agenda they have. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's prestige, maybe it's whatever, taking advantage of people somehow. But they're going to take what should, the truth that should make you find hope in life in Jesus, and they, they turn it into control and bondage and manipulation. So there is the character traits of the false teacher. Now let's quickly go and look at their competency. We've already covered it, so it'll just be touching on things we've already covered because we've seen that their theology is not grounded in the truth of the Word of God but in myths and legalisms. We've seen that within the course of their character, they're not interested in, in, in serving God and being under, under God's authority and, and, and doing things God's way. They do it their own way. Therefore, when they actually go to use their skills, what have we learned? Let's go back to verse 10 again, just to touch on them briefly. It says, there are many insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Right? We see that they're empty talkers. Their skill set is, they don't use the truth of the Word of God to teach. They use it to support their agenda. And therefore, they're saying nothing. They're insubordinate. They won't fall under authority. They rebel against God's men. They're deceivers. And verse 10 also says they're of the circumcision party. That's a a reference to a heresy that was going on in this day of people who said that if if you uh, weren't circumcised or living in a home with someone who's circumcised, you can't even believe in Jesus. There's this barrier between you and Jesus and it's circumcision. And if you're not this, you're not part of God. Now, if you drop down to verse 15, I'm sorry that we're scattered all over the text here, but let's just kind of look at what he says here. We learn a little bit more about these guys in verse 15. He says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, verse 15, if we were going through this in the flow of the context, we would recognize that in verse 14, he makes the statement that they were devoting themselves to these, these, these myths and these commandments of men, right? They were devoting themselves to these legalism as if those commandments would make you pure. They basically were saying, listen, you've got to clean your life up before you can go to God. You've got to clean it up. You got, you know, right, you're a mess. You've got all these things, and, and, and they want you to believe 
that, that God is so mad at you, that God hates you so much, that God is so frustrated with you that you can't stand in his presence because you've thought too many bad things, you've done too many bad things, you've felt too many bad things, right? You've got this whole resume that's so bad that you better clean your life up, and if you can click off our commandments, then you can become pure. And Paul is making a point, and he's saying this. No, 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 you don't understand. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled unbelieving, nothing is pure. Here's what it means. You can't just suddenly say, I'm going to follow these rituals, and these rituals will make me clean. I'm going to come here, we'll partake of the Lord's table together, and there you go, I clicked it off, and, and now I'm clean, I'm ready for the day. I remember at a wedding I was at one time, and the, sitting there in the pew, and somebody leaned over and said, are they going to have mass at this wedding? I said, I have no idea. Oh, I hope they do, man, because I just want to get hammered tonight and do some bad things. I want to get it clicked off so I can go live for myself. Nah, so you've got to understand something. To the defiled, that ritual remains defiled. It doesn't change you. The commandments and the myths and trusting all these crazy doctrines aren't going to change. You see, the only change, as Paul made it very clear in the very beginning of the book, is through Jesus, through trusting in him. That's it. But rituals won't do it. But when you're pure, then you can live. And all things are pure. If you partake of the Lord's table, it's great. If you, you know, do it with shorts on, great. You don't have to wear a suit. You don't have to click off some ritual. It's pure because your heart has been made pure. I don't have to follow these rituals to be made pure. See, here's what happens, though. When you start thinking that way, you get verse 16. Somebody who professes to know God, but they, but they deny him. Here's a person saying, I want to take, have mass at this service so that I can go out and sin like crazy tonight. You're professing to want to be right with God, but by your very lifestyle, you deny him. That's what rituals do. That's what false teaching does. It gets you to think that if you come in here, click off the time card, and go out, you can then live for your flesh, and that's cool with God. And the false teachers, man, they might look godly. They might look like they have it all together. But when you look at their life, kind of what happened in the 80s when God stripped the, the, the shroud from in front of the televangelists, all the perversions were discovered because their heart was far from God. Rituals are not a relationship. Rituals are not a relationship. Rituals appear godly, but they're not. Okay, so let's kind of wrap this up. What do we do with this text? Because here's what Paul is saying. These guys profess to know God. They deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So he's making it clear. You don't put these guys on your team. Don't just say, well, we differ a little bit. But you know, hey, we're all... No, he's saying, no, get away from these guys. Silence them. Quiet them. Call them to repentance. So what do we do? So here's Titus's mission. Chapter 1 tells us. You've got to appoint elders. You've got to silence these false teachers. He's got to instruct people in the truth. He's got to rebuke these guys because there are false teachers waiting to step in. Waiting to step in. Now, what does this mean for us? It does not mean that we should leave here fearful 
that like waiting outside the door are a bunch of guys in you know black suits and ties you know waiting <laughs> we're gonna take over the church right it's not that it shouldn't it doesn't make you paranoid the whole idea isn't paranoia this should drive us to faithfulness that's what it should do it should drive us to faithfulness it should drive us to say okay we know who we should lay hands on and as believers we should be saying hey i want to be that and as we pursue true godliness we by default defend against ungodliness but the secret and the and it isn't that i can that we can just sit around and make fun of all the false teachers because that won't get us anywhere the secret is to say, how do we pursue this? How do we live for this? How do we say, I want to be this. I want to read through verses 5 through 9, and I want to say, God, work this kind of stuff in my life. Let me be that kind of family man. Let me be that kind of person. Let me be above reproach. Work on my temper, God. Work on my self-control. Help me. I'm a violent person. I'm a drunkard. I'm greedy, whatever. Let's start dealing with this stuff in my heart. And as God begins to raise people up, then we can lay hands on them. Now I want to close by something that is really anticlimactic. Okay? Really anticlimactic. And in fact, let's all the air out of the balloon. But I want to do it anyways. Um, I want to close by reading to you from our church constitution. And maybe if I shout, you guys will be hooping. You can run around up here or whatever. Maybe a revival will break out. Who knows? Um, but the reason why I want to read to you from our church constitution is this is, this is new, just a few years old. <clears throat> and in it, we laid out the steps that we're using to appoint uh, shepherds in the church. And I just want to remind you of that process and remind you of the process we go through to show you we, we desired to put some things in place for our own church, realizing that we don't want to just do it intuitively like we've done it in the past, but actually have something we can pass on to people and some things to say, this is what we should be looking for and this is how we should be processing this. So, so let me just read this. I might be, it'll be up on, behind me on the screen and I'll probably skip over areas that are redundant. But, uh, but here's what it says. And, I, and again, I just want to read this to you because it's new and it's, it's new in our church and, and just to uh, help reaffirm that, that we're taking this seriously. But it says this, that, you know, candidates earnestly desiring the office of elder, including uh, the commitment inherent thereto, see, I shouldn't even be reading this, must, <laughs> must initiate this request in writing. So the person's going to initiate a writing to the, to the board of elders, stating their desire to serve as an elder. The board will examine the candidate as to the qualifications outlined, section 6, which is just Titus and 2 Timothy. The candidate must adhere to the doctrinal basis of the church, Teach no doctrine contrary to the doctrinal statement as put forth by our church after an appropriate trial period to determine like-mindedness. The candidate will then become an elder after unanimous approval of the board. Now, moving on, unpacks what that process looks like. Here are the steps, how that looks. Uh, the individual will be screened and evaluated in terms of discerning God's hand upon their life, qualifying him for leadership position, and then there's these steps. The first step, initiation. The individual says, hey, I feel this call in my life. Second is confirmation. 
the, the leadership team unanimously agrees, yes, we see God working. We see a potential for you as a shepherd here. You know, we've seen evidence of this. And there, third is demonstration. <clears throat> the elders will assign specific responsibilities to the person within the church. And, and the idea is just operate as an elder right now without the title. And let's see if people respond to you that way. Just do it. You know, that could be four months, six months, seven months, ten months. Um, no, no defined amount of time, but just do it. After that period of time is presentation. If the individual service is deemed appropriate by the elders, if we see that it's working, we bring it to the church, and we ask the body to give their feedback. Then when the body gives their feedback, we have the affirmation phase. The elders have acted upon the input of the congregation. So sometimes people say, hey, i got a question about this. And so you go follow up, and, and you go through that, and that could take two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, who knows how long. It takes as long as it takes. But then after that process is done, and yeah, hey, we see these traits, and we see that you've operated in this way, and we see that you're not insubordinate, or you have your own agenda, or you're trying to do your own thing. We've recognized that after working with a person for a year. We want to lay hands on them, set them apart for this position. I wanted to share that with you because I want you to know we're taking this seriously. These passages are here because the church should take this seriously. Because uh, if you don't take it seriously, you crumble from within. So here's the conclusion I would like to leave you with. I'd like you to pray for a few things. First of all, I'd like for you to pray for yourself. And what I mean by that is, is that as we read this, uh, the goal of this is not for us to look around and say, here's all the churches that are doing it wrong. You don't want to read through a list and begin to start accusing people. Oh, yeah, that guy, he should never do it. Oh, that, right? Shouldn't do that. We should read through these lists, qualifications, and read through all of this and say, God, I want to be Titus 1, 5 through 9, and I don't want to be Titus 1, 10 through 16. By your grace, help me not be that. And pursue that individually. I would ask you to pray for that. Second, I would ask you to pray for each other in that process. That we pray for each other. And that we would say, God, just work within our lives that we could do this. And third, I'd ask you to pray for all of the young people in our church. That God would raise up the next generation of shepherds for this church from within. That we could actually pass that baton and and lay hands on people, and, and pass this on to the next generation. And that God would raise up a, a godly generation of people who love Christ and want to make them known. So I'd ask you to pray for those three things, and I would ask you to join with me in praying for them now. Let's pray. God, um, as we read through this, and I know it's a list of things people are doing wrong, help us to be discerning, Lord, may that list cause us to discern false teachers and false leaders and not to to follow them. May it also cause us to be aware of the sin in our own hearts. Areas where even some of those lists might touch on our own sins. God, may we be honest before you. But Lord, most of all, I pray that, that, that we would remain faithful as a church for this one reason, Lord, that that Christ would be glorified so that people could be set free. Lord, this isn't about joining a religion. It isn't about joining some set of myths or a set of commandments or rules. This is about having freedom in our hearts. 
being set free from, from bitterness, being set free from pain, being set free from the anguish of things done to us, and being able to walk through this world knowing that we're not bound to the things that have happened and that we can join and live with eternity with you when we're translated into glory, that we can live with hope now and eternal joy later. God, the world needs to hear that message, and they won't hear it if we lose the message as a church. So God, may we be faithful so that we can share the love and the joy and the freedom of Jesus with the world. Thank you, God, for the people you have placed within here, those that are laboring hard to shepherd the flock, those that desire that and are pursuing that. Thank you for the next generation that's here. Lord, I pray that we'd see these young generation before us rise up and become shepherds of your people. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.